Eric, after you won Emmys for From the Earth to the Moon and Band of Brothers, you ended up in a position where you began to pitch ideas. Can you tell us about that period of your life? Yeah. Um, so there's a certain point where I kind of had a little bit of a name uh, in terms of being a writer that, that my agents could get out there to pitch based, especially after Band of Brothers. And I signed at a certain point, I transitioned from a small agency to, to CAA, which is the biggest agency. And I had, I had these, you know, pretty aggressive agents in the TV literary department who were like, you know, we can get you out on meetings and, you know, you can pitch ideas to, you know, networks and try and create your own series. So for, for several years, that was kind of my main focus. I had a few jobs where I worked on staff on other people's shows, but, but it was really come up with an idea, email the idea, like in a two or three sentence log line to my agent and then wait for a response and see if they think it's worth doing anything with. What I really learned was a lot of it, once you have an agent, if you're trying to go pitch ideas, or even if you're just writing on spec, they wanna, they wanna know that it's a worthwhile idea before that you know, you're gonna pursue it further, or they're gonna send it out or send you out with it. So, um, so what I really learned a lot about was what makes a viable TV series idea because I was doing it for a living and I was coming up with all these ideas and most of them my agents weren't that interested in and they would shoot down for various reasons. So it was like, I have to first get it past my own representatives, my own employees, so to speak. But I understood why, because they their reputation hinges on they're only bothering people with ideas from clients that they actually think really have a chance, right? So it doesn't look good for them if a studio or a producer keeps getting phone calls from them saying, you gotta read this script or hear this pitch and it's something they don't like. So um, so I learned and eventually there would be an idea that they would like, just that little logline version. And then they would set me up on meetings with production companies, you know, pods, producer overall deals that they would represent, the agency would represent all, all these different production companies that had deals at different studios. And, you know, sometimes I would go out and pitch the same idea to a different producer at every single one of the like five or six studios and um, hopefully they would like it. <laughs> and if somebody liked it, then the next step is you pitch it to the studio that they are affiliated with. And if the studio likes it, then you would pitch it to network. And um, studios usually like to pitch to their sister networks if they have one, which most of them do these days. So there was a lot of, you know, first we gotta go to our home network and then if they don't buy it, then you can go to the other networks. So, um, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a lot of swings and misses when you're doing that, I think for, for most people, where, you know, the ideas you have that your agents like, you may not get a producer that likes, or your producer may like it, but you can't sell it to a network like. But if you go the whole distance and the network likes it, then they pay you to write a pilot script. And that's kind of like the whole goal initially is to get a deal to write a pilot where they're paying you. All you've done is come up with a pitch and you know they're gonna pay you to write it as you go. Which means they have a certain amount of control over it because now they own it and they're gonna give you notes all along the way. But as a writer who's always writing on spec and may or may not sell anything, it's great to actually be paid while you're doing it. So that was uh, kind of my first experience of that uh, other than working on those miniseries. Did you think it was going to be, uh, or, or your pitches would be received differently coming off the success of these two um, shows? Did you feel that it would have been easier or was it actually less difficult than you imagined? No, it was definitely harder than I imagined. When I first 
started pitching ideas for series, I had no idea what I was doing. And I just came up with these ideas without any real knowledge. I mean, I'd watched TV my whole life. I, I'd won two Emmys for these miniseries on HBO, but those were very different from a like normal drama series, right? An ongoing, you know, scripted series that isn't based on history is very different from a miniseries based on history. So what I learned pitching to my agents at CAA, whether it was a full sit down, here's my lengthy idea, or a short log line in an email, was that they didn't like most of the ideas I came up with. And they would, they would tell me, I remember one of my agents said, said once, you know, they're going to think you don't really understand television if you pitch an idea like this. I was like, what? <laughs> so it was a big learning curve for me. To, to, and it really, it really helped me realize for the first time, I may have to come up with a lot of different ideas that I actually spend some time on to get to one that the professionals who represent me are going to like enough to want to send out to the industry. And remind me again, what does pods stand for? So a pod is a producer overall deal, which just means a production company that has a deal with one of the studios, whether it's for features or TV or both. And so as a writer, when you pitch something to your agents and they like it, usually the first step is they want to then have you pitch it to one of the pods that that agency represents. If you had to put a number on the amount of uh, ideas that you pitched, what would that number be? If it included ideas that I just had like a two or three sentence log line that I sent to my agents or somebody, um, dozens and dozens for sure, you know, maybe a hundred, maybe, maybe a little less than that. And those were mostly post Emmy or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't really in a position where anybody was interested in me pitching anything before those two miniseries that established me as a writer. So there were no opportunities or interests. But once once you're established enough that you've done something people think is good and and you know if you've won awards, that's helpful, then suddenly it's like, okay, do you have ideas? Or if you've worked on something successfully for many years, like on staff of a series, and you've you know risen up you know in the food chain of the series to a higher level over a period of years, that's when the studios and the networks and the agency even start to be more interested in you as somebody who might have your own idea for a show. So I didn't have any interest in me for that until after Band of Brothers. But then I had a lot of interest and a lot of people were interested in meeting me and so forth. And so I became kind of like a flavor of the month there for a while where I was being sent out to meet with all these different executives and production companies, sometimes just for general meetings, like, who are you? Nice to meet you. What kind of stuff do you want to do? And then sometimes pitch meetings where I have an official idea that I'm coming in to talk to them about. So um, most of the ones, most of the ideas I would pitch to my agents would die there and they wouldn't send me out with them anywhere. <laughs> but the ones that they liked, then I would end up with a production company. And then sometimes you make relationships with those people and they want to know what else you have and, and you um, kind of get the ball rolling. But what I learned was it really does start with your representative, whether you have a manager, an agent, or both. If they don't like it, it's probably not going anywhere. So you kind of have to impress them first. And sometimes they're the toughest ones to impress, uh, I felt. When you would go out on the meetings that were just sort of like a meet and greet, did you realize like the impact that those quick meetings would have? Did you realize they were kind of like sizing you up to see, is this someone we can work with, whether his ideas are brilliant or not? You know, those kind of general meetings, some people, some people jokingly call them free water because that's the only thing that ever comes of it is you get a free bottle of water while you're sitting there and having a meeting because they can seem pointless. 
They can seem like it's just a, hi, how are you? And I used to put a face to the writing sample we read or the script, we, the project we saw that you wrote or whatever. So it is, it, they seem a little bit vague sometimes, the general meetings, if you don't have anything to pitch, it's probably always better if you have some things you're working on that you can refer to obliquely without really pitching them so that they'll be like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. When you've worked that out, let's hear more about that, you know? Um, but I never knew what came of those general meetings, other than I, I suppose there were some where my agents were like, oh, they really liked you. And when we have something to pitch, they're definitely gonna be on the list of someone to take it to. So I suppose for them, there is a little bit of a screening process. The production company there, they wanna know that you're good in a room, you know, that you're articulate, that you're somebody that they think could pitch something successfully to a network, because obviously that's part of the job. So I suppose they're auditioning me for that, but I wasn't really super aware of what exactly was going on. Maybe that's part of the magic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here he is, he's coming, he's coming The waters down. were great. Sometimes <laughs> right. I got Diet Coke, sometimes regular Coke. Oh, good. There were more than one option is what I'm saying, which was nice. That's great. <laughs> How long did this pitching phase of your life last? Or is it still going on? Well, I mean, in theory, it could happen at any time, but, but there was a period where I was really actively doing that, which was kind of like, I would say, like a five-year period or so, like after Band of Brothers and kind of pre-strike. I remember that I sold a pitch right before the strike and was writing the script when we went on strike. And then that project didn't happen because the strike kind of, they, they like kind of killed a lot of deals during the strike. So I kind of see that as a, as a demarcation period. And that was leading up to that was a period where I was really doing that as the, my main focus, pitching one hour TV ideas. And they were always lighter comedic one hours because I always felt I was a comedy person. I'd always, my start was in comedy and then I became known for this very dramatic historical stuff, which meant I could be sold into the industry writing that, but I never really wanted to like write legal dramas and stuff like that. So I was always pitching ideas that were kind of like almost too comedic to be a one hour. And maybe that's why they didn't, you know, I didn't sell as many as I might have because I wasn't really a procedural writer or like a dark thrillery drama type of writer. The kind of stuff I was pitching at that time, there wasn't necessarily a lot of those kind of shows with that kind of tone on the air. Also, they probably weren't the greatest ideas. <laughs> I'm not going to say that it was just because it was the wrong fit, but, um, um, but yeah, about five years. What was the biggest takeaway, whether it's just take the water if you're offered, or what, what was the biggest lesson from that? Um, well, probably the biggest takeaway is really what eventually led to this book I wrote called The Idea, which is that you got to come up with a lot of ideas to come up with one that you could actually sell, or that would sell if you wrote the script, because I really did see that this isn't easy at all. I mean, you can look at TV and go, oh, there's all these different kind of TV shows. I can just come up with an idea for a show and it's a viable idea. All I have to do is write it or get the right person to hear it. And, and I mean, I wasn't probably that naive, but I was more naive than I am now because I really learned that it's a lot of work to develop an idea for a show and chances are they're gonna say, yeah, here's why that isn't gonna work or why we're not that interested or why there've been other shows kind of like that or that, that either were successful and so you're coming too late to the party or they weren't successful, which shows us that kind of show doesn't really work. And so uh, probably the biggest takeaway was just like, yeah, this, this isn't easy. I see why, you know, you get paid pretty well when you break through with something, but there's, it's very, uh, very easy to have a lot of lean times where you're not selling anything, um, even though you're working at it pretty hard. 
Do you almost think it was better that you didn't know, just because some people, when they know what the odds are, they won't try something? You know, very bright people, but they, they just feel like, well, it, it's not even worth trying. Well, there was no way that I was going to not try it because at that point I had reached a real height. I mean, I just won my second Emmy and had these two big miniseries. I'd worked with Tom Hanks for years and he still had projects for me to like do with him and stuff at Playtone. So it wasn't like there was no chance I was going to be afraid to try. It was more like, oh, they want to hear my ideas now. Great. Okay. I'll come up with ideas. And then it was like a little humbling that, oh, it isn't so easy. But it wasn't like a fear of trying going in. I was just kind of like, great, I'm, I'm Mr. Impressive Hollywood writer now that people want to work with. So, so uh, I'll come up with some ideas and we'll see where it goes. I, I wasn't super confident, but I wasn't like scared of it, I would say, because it was more like good things are happening. Oh, okay, let's do this now. Great, exciting. Eric, we have a question from Chloe Luisa. And Chloe asks, what goes into successful series pitch and what are some tips to really sell your ideas? So what I've learned is that a successful series pitch, it focuses on the series, not just the pilot. That's one of the big things because people tend to like come up with an idea for what's going to happen in the pilot episode and they want to pitch that in great detail, but they may not really understand what a typical episode would look like after the pilot. And so the other thing that writers tend to do is they feel like, oh, I know the long arcs of this show. It's going to start here and in season five, it's going to be here. And these are these things that are going to take many, many episodes to play out. And while there is a place for that in a pitch, I think writers tend to err too much on the side. Writers that are just kind of starting out on the side of those kind of long arcs and what can be more important and is easy for them to miss is yeah, but what does a typical episode look like? What's a typical one hour or half hour of this show? I think that's what the listener is kind of trying to most understand because they're picturing something that there's going to be these endless episodes of, hopefully. And each episode has to have its own beginning, middle, and end and not just be a small piece of a longer story. It has to have its own story. In fact, it probably is going to have multiple stories in it because a typical TV episode has maybe two, three, four different stories going on with a different main character who has a problem or a goal that week. And that's going to build and escalate over the course of that half hour or hour. And at the end, it's going to resolve. And so you're kind of coming up with a template of what a typical episode looks like when you come up with a pitch. So you want to be able to communicate that template in a compelling way so that they can sort of imagine, okay, there's going to be endless hours of this and I can see the kind of things that are going to happen in a typical episode, the kind of problems and conflicts that are going to be the grist for stories, which characters are going to get stories, what are those characters' main life issues, problems, desires, and conflicts that are going to lead to stories because a story is a problem, a desire, a conflict that someone is actively trying to resolve, right? That's usually building and complicating and then reaching some sort of climax before it's resolved. So a lot of it is also about character is you want obviously have compelling characters that feel believable and entertaining and you know, some somewhat original that, but they, they need something to do. They need something that's going to create endless hell for them essentially. So what is the hell? That's almost like the biggest question. What puts your characters in hell? What's the thing they're grappling with every single week? I mean, Ozark, the cartel is going to kill us <laughs> unless we do this very difficult thing and we might get killed or go to jail trying to do that thing. So it's like figuring out what that is. And that's the main thing you're communicating. There's this big sort of problematic situation that affects everyone on this show that everyone's involved in in some way. And then we have these specific interesting characters who are part of that, who have their own personal 
problems and conflicts along the way. Um, so understanding all of that and being able to communicate that to me is kind of like the core of any pitch for a series. So you're saying most beginning writers may, they want to write, let's just use this as an example, the pilot episode of Big Little Lies, but then they don't figure out all the other episodes and all the stories and arcs and three acts that are going to be in those other episodes. Yeah, it's not that you have to figure out every episode that's like way too much work to be doing in advance, like every story in every episode. It's more that you need that sort of franchise is a word that's sometimes used, which is the endlessly repeatable story generating situation, right? So you wanna know something about what's happening in your pilot and something about where things might be evolving over the course of say the first season or first and second season or whatever. But almost more important than that is understanding how in a typical hour or a typical half hour of this series, here are who my, here, here's the, the main characters that are mostly gonna be the ones we're following and here's the kind of stuff they're involved in, the kind of problems that they're trying to resolve. You don't have to know what they are specifically, but you have to kind of have a sense of what they're made from, you know, what's causing stories to happen you know, every week on this show. What is that thing that's, that's creating endless conflict, difficulty, and the desire to resolve a problem. And that's, you know, to me, that's the main thing that tells me what a show is about. Just like in a feature film, the logline is basically telling you what's the main problem, the main external difficulty that the person we're following is trying to resolve. That's really important. It's going to take the whole movie to resolve. It's about the problem at the center of the story. So it's really the same thing with a series, only it's it's, it's got to be ongoing stories that are going to go on and on and on. Many stories, dozens and dozens, even hundreds of stories you want to feel like this has the potential for. I know last interview we had with you, we talked a lot about your book, which was brand new at that time. And the book is The Idea, The Seven Elements of a Viable Story for Screen, Stage, or Fiction. I'm not sure if we asked you this before, but how much of the book is dedicated to developing the character and how much of it is dedicated to developing plot? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's really, it's concept driven almost more than character or plot. Character or plot is all part of the overall concept, but the, the book is really about, there's these seven different elements that you wanna make sure your idea possesses. So. And, and those seven elements describe the problem at the heart of the story. So the problem has to be punishing and relatable and original and believable and life-altering and entertaining and meaningful. Those are the seven acronym of problem. So each one of those seven things has to do with plot and character. You know, you want your characters to be original in some way, you want your plotting to be original in some way, but most importantly, you want your concept to be original in some way, the concept that kind of holds it all together. Once you have an idea that meets all the criteria that you've laid out in your book, how do you go about structuring that idea into a screenplay? Well, a lot of people, I mean, I work with clients as a coach, you know, a consultant and help people do this and help guide them through the process. But I also do it myself as a writer. And I do think that the Save the Cat uh, book and its tools are helpful. I, I mean, I, my favorite thing about Save the Cat really are the 10 genres and working with and they each have like five subgenres each um, that he goes into in the second Save the Cat book. Save the Cat goes to the movies. Those genres I think are super helpful and very original and revolutionary for writers coming up with ideas for a movie. So I highly recommend those. But he also has the beat sheet, which is the thing that, that Save the Cat's most known for, which is the 15 point structural paradigm 
which I think was Blake Snyder building on other paradigms people had for three X structure going back to probably Aristotle, but certainly Sid Field and other people since that. And uh, I think he came up with some really good ideas for here's what the first half of act two of a movie usually looks like. And here's what the second half of act two usually looks like. And here's what the second half of act one tends to look like. And he came up with fun names for these different structural beats or sections in a movie. So I think that is a helpful tool. Some people don't like it and, you know, um, or have a love-hate relationship with trying to like fulfill, especially when it's like it has to happen on this page or that page, which I'm not super strict about, but but I do think he had some pretty good arguments for why he felt this is a good page length and this is a good place in the movie for certain things to happen. So anyway, when you do a, one of those beat sheets, it ends up being like a four-page document, uh, I think, ideally. Where So what that means is you're not spelling out every single scene. You're not figuring out every single thing that happens in your movie yet because that would take 10 or 15 pages. There's no way to really do that in four pages. If you're trying to do that in four pages, and I've seen people do it often, the note they're going to get back is this isn't enough for a movie. There's not enough scenes here. There's not enough that, that's happening for this to fill two hours. So it's really about kind of summarizing the key sections of the movie and then the key points like the midpoint and the break in Act 2 and the break in Act 3, which are just moments. You know, you kind of figure out what those moments are and then you summarize the sections in between so you kind of have an overview of the structure. So that was one of Blake's, Blake Snyder's big contributions to the world and, and, I, and I think it's helpful. So I, I will use that as one method for kind of working toward a structure. Would you say most of the writers of screenwriting books and teachers, it's basically all the same, but they, they name things in a different fashion? It's just their style of presenting it? I think there is some truth to that, 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 that people are a lot of times saying the same things in different books and different paradigms for story and screenwriting. Um, but I also think people do come at it differently and sometimes have different conclusions about you know, some of the precepts that they come up with. I mean, like for instance, the Dramatica theory of story, which I've played with a lot over the years, ha has a pretty different and specific take on how stories work compared to, you know, Save the Cat. And like the hero's journey, the Christopher Vogler book, that is, my understanding is that's a certain kind of story he's talking about, which is a hero's journey type story, which not every story is a hero's journey type story. But if you're writing that, that book really goes into kind of what the, the structural points tend to be in those kind of stories. Um, and, but, but yeah, I do think to a large extent people are speaking about the same things. Like most people agree that like the end of act two of a movie, about three quarters of the way through, there's usually a major defeat, crisis, all is lost moment. And then there's a one last kind of chance in the third act to solve whatever the main kind of problem of that story was. And they might call it different things, but they kind of are talking about the same thing. Did you read any of the William Goldman books? Like, Which Lie Did I Tell? Or I did. I read Adventures in the Screen Trade. I think I also read Which Lie Did I Tell. But those are more about my life as a screenwriter as opposed to here's how to do it, you know? I don't think he was trying to teach so much as talk about what, what life can be like doing it professionally. What was your takeaway from uh, what he talked about in terms of what life could be like? Um, I know he's a very straight shooter. Didn't, yeah. Didn't well, I mean, uh, I guess I think I read Adventures in the Screen Trade before I was really working in the industry, as I recall. And, uh, you know, it, it was probably a foundational book at the time for understanding what it's like in Hollywood as a writer. Um, I remember him saying things like, you know, it basically takes me six months 
and in six months I'll have a, a screenplay. It'll be a real screenplay. It may not be the screenplay you want. It may not be a screenplay that will get made into a hit movie, but it will be a, it will be a real, I can create this product in six months. I remember that staying with me. And of course the thing people often quote is the nobody knows anything line, which I think is sometimes misunderstood a little bit because I don't think he was saying nobody knows anything about what tends to work in story or in movies. I think what he was saying is no one can say for sure what movie is going to be successful at the box office, which to me are two somewhat different things. And so, I mean, I think there are people that know some things about story structure and character and writing and what, what tends to work better than what tends to not work as well. They're not hard and fast rules that are 100% applicable at all times, but I do think there are principles that are good to understand and follow as in any endeavor. It's not just something that you just dive in your first time and wing it and it all goes great usually. Um, however, it's true that nobody can say for sure this idea, this script, this movie is gonna definitely sell or not sell, be a hit or not be a hit. And that is something that he talked about a lot that you know it's not an exact science. What makes a great story? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. That's a very big, broad question. Um, what makes a great story, to me where it starts, is a really compelling problem that is going to take the whole story to be solved. That millions of strangers consuming that story would be able to identify with this problem and care that it gets solved and be really entertained by the process of watching people try to solve it. So that's kind of a lot of things in one, but to me, that's kind of where it all starts with. There's something that someone's going through in life that really matters to them and hopefully to us as the audience. It's really important, it's really difficult. It's going to take a lot of effort and active uh, action toward trying to solve it, which isn't going to work. So it's difficult, it's complicated. Trying to solve it usually leads to pushback and complications and things that don't go as planned. And so that tends to build the sense of problematic situation. So it's growing and escalating, building over the course of the story. And then in the end, there's some kind of resolution that has taken the audience on a journey and usually taken certain characters on a journey where they're not the same as what they were. And therefore it was meaningful and important in some way that they went through that. How does someone know their movie idea sucks? <laughs> well, most of us don't know. <laughs> it's hard to know without getting third party objective feedback from someone who isn't just your friend who's going to try and encourage you. Um, it can help to put it in a so-called drawer for a couple of months. We don't really have literal drawers anymore where we put printed out screenplays, but I certainly will write a draft or even a few drafts until I feel pretty good about something. And then I'll put it away and work on something else for you know, two or three months. And then when I come back to it, I have a much better objective sense of what works and doesn't work than I had when I was finishing that draft. So getting that objectivity, that perspective that's outside the perspective of the writer who's just trying to make it work, but the evaluator who's just seeing it for the first time and finding fault with it is hard to do. And it can help to have those sort of built-in delays between you writing it and then you looking at it again. Um, and of course, other people can give you that perspective as well. But you know, all you can really do is say, well, here are the principles of what makes something good. And here's what I think is good. And here's what I'm trying to do that I think is good. And here's me doing it 
to the best of my ability, but I think you always end up with something that you're like, people may all think this sucks. I may not have anybody that likes this, or at least the right people aren't gonna like this. That's always very possible. And I certainly go through that with everything I've ever written. Things that people loved and things that people didn't love. I had that same insecurity. And I remember feeling, uh, feeling encouraged when I read, I think it was John Steinbeck, like some journal entry, like before, I want to say before Grapes of Wrath, where he was so insecure about what he was writing, it's not going to live up to the success he had on some other thing. And he would talk about what he was writing about and why it just wasn't working and no one's going to like it. And so it's kind of like a built-in insecurity that you have. I mean, maybe some people don't have it. Maybe some people think everything they write is great. But in my experience, the people that, are the, the, that do the best usually have a pretty highly developed self-critical sensibility, maybe to their detriment. Maybe it goes too far to where you don't trust in any of your stuff being of value. Um, so, but, but you can go too far in either direction. You don't really know if it sucks. You just suspect it might suck or you're worried people are gonna say that it does. So in the end, like all you can really do is learn the principles, uh, you know, learn and study and understand what makes things work and then try to please yourself. Try to write something you would really want to see. So that something that fulfills the things that you most love. And then get that objective perspective however you can. And, and, uh, and then hope for the best because you never really know, you know what other people are going to say. Yeah, that's where I was going with that. And, and you, you, you said it before I was even able to um, go there. And, and that is, do you find most writers are the, of the camp that they they're so critical of their own work or are they of the equally detrimental camp which is everything they do is amazing and the world's just waiting for it that can be just as damaging yeah and well, more damaging i think yeah well, you yeah. Think so? yeah yeah i think i think most writers who've been doing it for a while tend to be more in the camp of wow this is hard and i like what i'm writing sort of for a while but i'm nervous that people aren't going to like it and i and, and i may be very self-critical um, I think when you're first starting out and you write your first couple of things and no one's bashed your head in yet with negative feedback, you tend to be more naive and be more like, oh, this is fun and this is good what I've written. <laughs> hey, everybody, look at what I wrote. And then when you get actual, like, aggressively negative, professional-level objective feedback, it's like, oh, I remember the first time I got that. I was still living in Ohio where I grew up and I'd written, like, one screenplay in college uh, you know, I was a film production major and I was like, wrote my second one. And I knew somebody who knew somebody who was a major Hollywood producer and they were willing to send my script to that producer. And after many months, the script got sent back to me with a coverage that that producer's reader had written, like a two page coverage where they tore my script apart so violently about how just terrible it was that it was really shocking and and obviously demoralizing for a while and that was my first taste of you can write something that you think is really good and and uh, when you send to the people that really quote matter that could help move it forward they're not going to give you any of the benefit of the doubt that your friends are going to give you they're really looking at it like a business is this product a worthy product that i'm going to put money and time behind or not and they're, if they don't think so, they're going to be, or if they have to tell their boss whether it is or not, they're going to be pretty, you know, pretty clear and uh, uh, about why it isn't. <laughs> and most of the time, they think it isn't. And most of the time, most scripts aren't something that 
this big producer, so to speak, would actually be able to do something with. That's just the reality of the world. So um, once you've been been beaten down a little bit by having that happen a few times, I think you tend to be more self-critical and and obviously, yeah, it can go too far to where you're then too down on yourself or too unsure or not confident enough in what you're doing. And also, too, you could be you could come off some hit and there's people waiting in the wings, critics, well-established critics that are just looking for blood in the water. So, I mean, that's a real, you know, unfortunate part of the industry. There are people just waiting for the next hit of somebody to have an opinion and then they're able to promote their piece based on. Um, you know, their dislike of something that the public loves and having to face the ramifications of that. We know many careers that have probably been halted for a little while off of that. Yeah, I mean, what could also happen is if you've been told you're the greatest for long enough, you can feel that it's too, that it's really easy to write something that will be successful. Maybe you're already very successful in some other related part of filmmaking and, and now you're writing and then you know, and no one is telling you no, you know, and so you can, you can, having too much encouragement, I mean, it's like a double-edged thing. It's like you want, encouragement's helpful because most of us really thrive on and need some, but at the same time, if all you get is encouragement that's not really um, honest encouragement, it can obviously make you unaware of, you know, some of the flaws of what you're doing or, you know, keep you from being as, as critical or have as much you know, objective perspective on your work as it might need. Yeah, the golden child syndrome. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that's a real designation, but yeah, that, that would be equally viable. And we've known a lot of people whose downfall has been from that as well. And yeah. Yeah. So is there a happy medium? Is there, can, you, can you be, do you think that it just takes time? So wherever the pendulum has swung and you fall under that after you've kind of been beaten down a little bit, that's where the real magic happens is as after you kind of take a real stock of yourself and your work or do some people never self-correct some people just I go mean, into a hole I, to me it's more like with so many things it's like a daily challenge it's a daily challenge to have the right mindset and the right attitude toward what you're doing it's not a thing that you arrive at suddenly a perfect place where you're emotionally healthy <laughs> and you know how to like view your work in the most sort of you know, critical enough, but not too critical kind of way. I think it's more just like every day there's a tendency to hate what you wrote that day or to think what you wrote that day is genius, right? And so it's just a constant practice of being kind of almost zen about it. Not let the highs get too high or the lows get too low, not be too down yourself or too in love with everything you've ever done either, but just be kind of like, I'm just, it's like a practice, like a spiritual practice. I'm practicing at writing. I'm writing every day. And a big part of writing is practicing the consciousness that works the best to be writing and producing stuff that you feel you know decent about. And that consciousness is kind of like letting go of opinions and even your own opinion to some extent at a certain point and letting go of ego and just be trying to like invite and allow ideas and explore ideas in a kind of a playful way, knowing that there will be time later for the critical mind to come in and hash through all of it. Um, but that critical mind can really strangle the creative process when what you need most of the time is more ideas, not more criticism. So, but for me, that's a daily challenge to not get too critical or, you know, and, or, or not get too overly um, confident to the point of, you know, uh, 
not putting something through the rigors of the creative process of rewriting and so forth, but to just be like present in the creative idea state and then critical, I need to be critical, but not too critical. I don't feel like I'll ever get to a place where I've got that all so handled and I'm just great at that. It's like I have to work at it daily. What is meaningful conflict and why do so many screenwriters get this wrong? So meaningful conflict, I mean, conflict to me is synonymous with problem. So I remember early in my screenwriting endeavors, I, I had people sometimes say, your script doesn't have enough conflict. And I was like, I don't understand what that means. Like I thought conflict just meant people fighting and arguing, you know, or beating up on each other. But then I came to understand that conflict and problem mean the same thing. So in any story, the audience is most interested and engaged when there's some kind of problem that someone is actively trying to resolve. That's pretty much like scene writing 101, story 101. You always wanna be focused on that. And whenever there isn't a problem to be solved or whenever no one's trying to solve it, even if it exists, audience engagement, emotional engagement tends to sag a little bit. So meaningful conflict would just mean conflict that is really related to the overall goal of the story. You know, every story kind of begins with something that makes us go, oh, here's what needs to be solved. Here's the outcome that's being pursued that hopefully I'm emotionally invested. I want to see them reach that outcome. So meaningful conflict would be conflict in scenes then which have to do with that outcome and, and how is it going trying to get to that outcome. Because you could have conflict that doesn't really relate to the larger story goal that wouldn't be so meaningful. It would just be conflict for the sake of conflict. So ideally it's conflict that matters to the story. And you might also have like a B story, like there's a conflicted relationship with somebody who's the ally or the love interest or something. And so you might have meaningful conflict that's advancing the B story. It doesn't always have to be about whatever that kind of A story goal is. But to me, the most important thing is you do need constant conflict, which means constant problems and it should be meaningful to whatever we're all there to try to see work out. What about when people put too much conflict right away? I mean, I'm thinking of, let's say, I know I was really dating myself with the movie Staying Alive. It was great to see. <laughs> it's such a great film, I just have to go. To <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when John Travolta's character is sort of strutting down the street and he's like, he bumps into Sylvester Stallone's character and it kind of shows like, okay, this is New York City and it's very like tight and you're up against all these people and it's a little bit contentious, but it works because it kind of shows that. But then sometimes I've seen films where there's just too, there's like an argument that doesn't belong in there. It's right away. How do well, you balance? My feeling about the beginning of a movie is that you're mostly trying to get the audience to understand the main character and their status quo life and emotionally get invested in who they are and what their basic life situation is before the big problem has emerged, which will then occupy the rest of the story. That big problem tends to emerge as the catalyst or the inciting event or inciting incident, you know, maybe about 12 pages in, uh, if you use like the save the cat page count. Once that thing happens, that rocks their world and then sets them on a mission ultimately for the rest of the story to resolve whatever happened at that catalyst. Prior to the catalyst, you're just introducing the audience to the main character and their world. And you're hopefully getting them understanding enough about that character that they can start to feel they know them and they know their situation. Writers often have issues with this where they don't really do that very well. They don't stay with the main character and take the time to kind of illustrate what their current life is 
and make them emotionally accessible to the audience, make us have a reason to want to follow them. That, that term, save the cat, the idea if they save a cat in the first 10 pages, we'll care about them is kind of a half joking, but, but the idea that we, we get invested in the character for some reason that the audience is led to by the writer, give us a reason to care because we tend to not care about some stranger in a movie unless you make us care. So that's like almost the writer's first and foremost job, make us care. And so it starts at the beginning. So to me, the opening scenes of a movie, the first 10 pages or so, they should have conflict in them because every scene should have conflict. But that conflict should be just the normal conflicts of that character's everyday life kind of up until before the catalyst hits. Even a movie, even a movie like Saving Private Ryan, which opens with the most biggest conflict you could imagine, you know, storming Omaha Beach. Ultimately, that's just illustrating what Tom Hanks's life was right before the catalyst of the movie. The catalyst being he gets the order that you've got to go save Private Ryan, right? That sets in motion the real story problem for the rest of the movie and the outcome that we all get invested in. Prior to that, we're just seeing, well, what's Captain Miller's life and his unit's life like before they get that order? How do we get up to speed with who he is and what he's dealing with and what's going on in his life right now? He's got a very special version of that, but that's kind of the same thing for everyone, for every movie. So you can have conflict, you should have conflict, but sometimes people want to open with something really big where they're already launching the story on page one. In other words, like the catalyst event is happening at the very beginning before we have any idea who is who or what the world of the story is. And I think that tends to be a mistake because the audience needs some time to get up to speed and invested first. Right, and even like, let's say, Big Little Lies, you have Reese Witherspoon, and it's a very, you know, sort of manicured, uh, you know, it seems more pampered life, but there's these little dilemmas throughout, like with the carpool and going to the school and someone's in her way and she's not getting what she wants from her child. And so you, you see these little mini conflicts being set up, even though it doesn't seem like the same as, as a war scene. Yeah, conflicts, but not the one big conflict that's gonna drive the rest of the, the story from that point forward. And in a series like that, you're also doing that times four different characters, I think, where each one of those characters gets some of those scenes in the beginning that makes us go, okay, here's this person, here's their life situation, here's the basic conflicts for them, here's their basic personality, their basic desires, and what's in the way of those desires. Nothing huge has happened to rock their world and start the story, but I get who they are. I get who Nicole Kidman is. I get who Shailene Woodley is, et cetera. So yeah, and that's part of why writing a pilot can be harder because you have to set up multiple characters and you have to do it quickly. So you have to find the right way to make the audience go, I get who they are and I kind of am intrigued and I kind of care about them a little, I wanna see where life is going for them. Whereas in a movie, you usually only have one main character and you've got like 10, 12 pages to just do it for them. You don't have to do it for anybody else. In fact, you shouldn't be trying to spend time on scenes about other characters in the first 10 pages, in my view, because the whole goal is to get us caring about the main character because we're gonna subjectively experience the rest of the story through their point of view. So it's not about showing us these other people, what's going on with them, it's about get us inside their world and their psychology, looking out through their eyes as they live their life. Right, and so with Staying Alive, going back to it, John Travolta checks in, any messages? And he's in this sort of like, I don't know, weekly motel or whatever that in New York City where he's a struggling actor dancer. And of course the guy's like, no. So it just shows again, this guy's, okay, another week, humble and sort of broke. And you, that kind of sets off his world because that's basically 
before he meets the Fanola Hughes character. Yeah, it's this is my normal life and here are the problems in my normal life that are just the status quo situation that and it makes you care about him because he's got this kind of undeserved misfortune. You always feel for the underdog, the person that wants something they can't have that they're working toward, but nobody cares. So that's a classic way to make an audience want to invest in the main character in those opening pages. We have a question here from Millie Purpose Podcast, and they ask, what do you think made your work stand out that won awards? Did you do something different or would you consider it luck? Well, my work that won awards, I assume they're talking about like the Emmy Awards for Saving Private Ryan and, and Band of, I'm sorry, not Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers and From the Earth to the Moon. And it wasn't that those were my work and it won awards just because of my work, right? Those were big team efforts and those were projects, you know, produced by, you know, Tom Hanks and, and based on books written by people like Stephen Ambrose, and they were true stories. And you know, HBO put a lot of money into them. So it wasn't so much it won awards because of what little Eric Bork did, but, <laughs> but I played a role in this group of writers and producers on both sure. of them. And so I wouldn't say I made it win awards. I just contributed to something that as a whole won awards. So, um, and uh, was it luck? I mean, you know, I was lucky to be Tom Hanks' assistant. I was lucky that he read some of my stuff and wanted to promote me and give me this opportunity. I was lucky that a producer came on board that mentored me and helped me find my voice and, and a way to write scripts for these things that people would think would work. I was lucky that HBO put all this money into it. I mean, there's a lot of luck along the way. And then there's the preparation, you know, that the, hopefully you're, you're prepared and, and you've got the ability to do what's needed. And, but a lot of it was me learning on the fly and trying to kind of do my best feeling overmatched by all of it, but then eventually finding my way around, okay, here's how you do this, you know, and uh, doing, a, doing a decent job and sort of playing my part in it. So um, I don't know that it's that I did something very special or different or unique that I could put my finger on um, exactly, but obviously somehow there was a fit there where I was able to contribute something and be part of these amazingly well, uh, you know, loved, um, big projects. And you put in a lot of time doing jobs that maybe some people wouldn't take. I know we talked about that in our last interview before today, just, you know, just you did temping and things like that. And some people might not want to do that right away. And, it, and there's a delusion that, well, I, I don't do that, you know, and those jobs are actually very difficult. They're very difficult to show up every day to some of those because it's very stressful and you know you're sort of the low person on the totem pole or whatever but so doing time and sort of doing that and cultivating relationships and a trust factor yeah yeah that's true i, I mean i i was also doing my time obviously writing and trying to learn the craft and you know generating material and getting feedback and all that but yeah, for me, getting a job at the temp was something that I like moved to L.A. to do. So it wasn't like I'm above that. It was more like, oh, this is a way you can like get in the industry and sort of learn and get closer to all of it and eventually have an easier chance at maybe making the right contacts, et cetera. And also getting better at it because you're around it. So um, but it can be hard to take this kind of job, especially if, you know, you're in your 40s and have kids or something and on a mortgage in Iowa, you know, so those are usually jobs taken by people in their 20s sort of right out of college like I was who are living in LA or willing to able to move to LA um, and that certainly can be helpful 
So I took it more as a very helpful way to move forward. But yeah, at the time, low paying and sometimes difficult bosses. But for the most part, I found it a better place to work than, you know, the blockbuster video I'd managed in Dayton, Ohio, or the, you know, you know, restaurants I was waiting tables at before that. <laughs> I'm hoping we can talk about the Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know you just wrote a blog post. It's flyingwrestler.com? Yes. yes. Okay. And spoiler alert for anyone tuning in. From the problem perspective, uh, what are some of the biggest problems these, is it really characters? I mean, is there really one protagonist in the film I should ask first, probably? Well, my take on it on Once a Time in Hollywood is that there, it's set up like there are three stories, three characters that we're following, right? The three stars of the movie. And I didn't really feel that Margot Robbie had a story per se because she didn't really have a problem. So there was not, not really a problem for her to try to address. It was more just we're meeting her and we're seeing what she's like and we're seeing her being kind of a giddy, you know, young actress watching a movie that she's in and how she's excited. So we establish her as a sympathetic character. So it's not like she really has a story per se. She's just a presence in the movie who gets some of her own scenes, which is somewhat unusual, um, but she doesn't take up a huge chunk of the movie. Then you have two other characters who each have a problem in their lives, uh, I would say. Uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's character feels like his acting career is sort of, you know, on the wane. And Brad Pitt is, you know, not really working as a stuntman anymore and doesn't kind of like have the life he really wants either. So they're both set up in a way that, that they have kind of a problem in their life, a generalized problem like you normally have at the beginning of a movie. What they don't really have is the more traditional kind of catalyst that rocks their world. Like one big event happens where it's like, now I've got a particular goal or a particular mission I'm on to try to solve this big problem that's gonna take the whole movie to solve. It doesn't really work in that traditional way because I would say Leo's problem, he's not trying to solve it, he's more just kind of stuck in it. And he gets this job acting on a TV show and he's not necessarily that excited about it. He's not using that to try to like fix something in his acting career. He's just doing it because he's got this gig to do. Same thing with Brad Pitt. He's kind of hanging out and doing what his current job is and living his current life. So to me, it's a more non-traditional kind of day in the life, slice of life type of movie in, in a way where we spend, I think it's like two full days in their lives and then another day that happens months later at the end um, where we're not we're not seeing characters actively trying to fix some life problem that's urgent it's more that they kind of have well for brad and leo they kind of have problems but they're not out there how do i fix my problem so to speak then the end of the movie gives us an interesting unexpected kind of sense of resolution that happens but it kind of happens where we feel like Leo's life is going to take a positive turn maybe because of everything that happened. And, but it kind of comes more through the back door. It's not the usual, he's trying to do something and it's building to a climax. It's more that he's just kind of like living his life and, and it's told in a way that some people are describing as meandering so that the, the pace is not the normal Hollywood movie pace. So there's, the movie's really stayed with me and there's a lot that I like about it and I find myself like reading about it and so forth. So it was more just, I wanted to point out what I think are at the heart of what some people aren't loving about it, 
which is a sense of maybe a slow pace or a sense of what's this movie really about? It doesn't have the normal kind of story. And I wasn't prepared for the length or for that pace when I went in based on the trailers and so forth. So I was kind of like, oh, this is really not the normal kind of storytelling that we're used to. And it's not really a story in the normal way. It's more like three characters with a certain life situation and we're just living life with them for a couple of days. What if the protagonist was actually Hollywood and the industry and the reason that there's no particular one problem is that it shows the different levels of problems and the contrast. So you have Brad Pitt's character who seems pretty satisfied with his life, even though by most people's definition, it would not be success. Whereas Leonardo DiCaprio, is it Rick Dalton? His would actually be, I mean, he's in his pool, like rehearsing lines for a film. So I, I, I you know, and, and, but that's kind of how this town, like you see a lot of people that seem like they're very unsatisfied, but they actually have achieved so much. So that's really the problem is just sort of the, the viewpoint of the industry. Maybe I'm getting too yeah. Well, I mean, movies work on, on a number of different levels. And I, and I think that it does do that. It's exploring life in Hollywood during a certain period of time, life in Los Angeles during a changing time in our society. And it does it in ways that I think are really interesting. I would just say that Hollywood can't be a protagonist, you know, like a place isn't a protagonist in the way I would just define it or a main character, because to me, a main character or a protagonist is a person typically who's got something they're trying to solve. They're a sentient being who's got an issue that we can all relate to that they're out there in life trying to fix that issue. So obviously Hollywood isn't doing that, so they can't really stand in for a main character. Hollywood can't as a whole. But you know he may have been well aware that he was doing it this way on purpose and that it wasn't traditional and that's okay. And it is okay. It's making a lot of money. It's getting great reviews. It's going to win awards. There's just maybe some people that walk out going, oh, I didn't like as much as I thought I would, which happens with pretty much every movie. So, But as somebody who's like kind of teaching screenwriting and, and analyzing why I like and don't like different things, you know, I tend to sit down at the blog and go, well, here's my take on it and here's why I thought it could have been shorter. <laughs> so one would figure that a story about the entertainment industry would be inherent with conflict. You'd almost have to take parts of conflict out, but you felt possibly that the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did not have enough conflict? It's not that it didn't have enough conflict. It did have conflict in it. I would say Margot Robbie's slice of the story didn't have any conflict in it, but that's a very small slice. Uh, I would say that it's more that characters aren't actively pursuing resolution to a pressing problem or desire that they're focused on that's building and escalating over the course of the film. But there is conflict. Also, the scenes are, tend to be very long, longer than we're used to, and they may feel like nothing's really happening regarding the conflict or the problem for a, quite, a, quite a long time. Like, you know, Leo's on the set and he sits down next to this child actress and they have actor, and they have this conversation <laughs> that doesn't feel like it's necessarily like it's taking a, taking a while, but it's well-written and it's engaging in, in its own way. It's just not the typical length and pacing that we're used to, which some people might find very refreshing. I know that they do, but others might be like, where's this going? Why are we just sitting here on this kind of mundane conversation? But eventually it leads somewhere, which is he wants to impress this little girl actor. 
And then we have the scene that he does with her, which is also a very long scene in a movie. In other words, they take much more time than you would normally see to show that he puts on a good performance and impresses her and feels good about it. They don't do it as quickly as movies typically do in today's Hollywood, or even in 1969 Hollywood, probably. <laughs> Although the pacing then was definitely slower than it is now. And who knows if that was one of his thoughts that I'm going to a kind of pacing that's more of a bygone era, I'm not sure. And with the Sharon Tate character played by Margot Robbie, if people are aware of Sharon Tate's story, maybe is there some magic in showing this like amazing dreamlike life, you know, beautiful woman, seems sweet. But then if you go back and you research, you realize that is very tragic up until that you know point. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, and some people point that out in comments on the blog post I did, which I think they're they're right in saying, the audience, if they know what happened with the Manson murders, there's an inherent tension waiting to see what's going to happen with the Manson murders. And even though none of our main characters are actively trying to do anything to solve anything other than the one very compelling scene where Brad Pitt is at Spawn Ranch. The rest of the time, they're kind of oblivious to or not focused on that. And, and so, yeah, it puts this character in jeopardy. We know what, ha what, what Sharon Tate is facing. So, yeah, I think that is kind of their way of, of giving you a story that has a resolution at the end. It just doesn't have the typical thing of characters are trying to solve it over the course of the middle. They're just kind of living their lives in the end, put in a situation where something really huge happens that's uh, that uh, that ends up creating a, a resolution. But one thing I think I noted also in my post is that the, the Tarantino movies I know usually have life and death stakes pretty much constantly underlying almost every scene, like Pulp Fiction, Glorious Bastards, Reservoir Dogs. And so those scenes in those movies also tend to be quite long, like the opening scene in Glorious Bastards, which is this really great scene. Uh, but it's got life and death tension at every moment. So we're on the edge of our seats going at some point, this is going to turn and someone's going to get killed. When you don't have that tension, I think it's harder to get away with longer scenes. Although he seems to be getting away with it with, with, <laughs> in a lot of ways with this movie is doing very well and I'm not trying to, uh, to completely slam it. But as oh, no. I analyze my own reaction sure. and some other people saying it feels meandering and so forth, plotless in a way, um, I think that's kind of what they're referring to. In The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Steve Carell's character seems to have a clearly defined problem, but is that really what the problem is? Like, the audience goes in with one vision of what his problem is, but is that really his real problem in the end? Well, uh, I mean, he, uh, a lot of times you have an external problem and kind of an internal arc as well, and those two things are intertwined, and so they both kind of get resolved in the end. So for me, his external problem is that he's a 40-year-old virgin, and these people at work know about it now and are focused on it. And he's terrified and self-conscious and feels overwhelmed and in over his head, and, um, and nothing goes right as he's trying to deal with, now I have this woman I'm dating, and these people, he's, they're trying to get me you know, having sex with and so forth. And so I do think the external problem for the whole movie is, is he going to be, be able to resolve his virginity and do it in a way that he's happy with, which probably means this woman he's in a relationship with is going to know and it's going to be okay and they're going to finally have sex and it's all going to be fine. So that's the external problem. So I don't think it really changes. 
in terms of that being the problem that we spend the whole movie waiting to see resolved. Internally, he's got his own arc about his own um, self-image and his own idea of who he is and his own you know, willingness to grow and change as an adult man, which is intertwined with that. And so he's got all the action figures in their boxes and he doesn't drive, he rides a bicycle. And you know, there's all these things that are kind of like childlike about him as well. And, um, and so you kind of see at a certain point that he has to internally change in some way in order to have the external thing work out. So the way he, he gets internally, he gets pressured to change in the big blow up scene with her, which is really about his secret that he hasn't told her, but they're selling all of his stuff and he's freaking out about it, right? Because she wants him to sell on eBay all of his toys so he can like open his own store and like be a grown up kind of, and, he, and he's not ready to do that. So on some level, he's not ready to be a grown up. So there's that internal arc, but the external problem is losing his virginity successfully and being able to be with her. Okay, so it seems like that's very clear to the audience, the internal and external conflict. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, do you feel that the internal and external are clear? Or there's just more of an external and there wasn't so much of an internal with Leo's character? If he is the main, let's say, well, I realize there's three protagonists. But. I mean, I think there's, I think there are external and internal arcs for, we'll just talk about Leo's character. Um, it's just that he's not actively pursuing a resolution in a way that's really super stressful the way it is in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and it, and it plays out in a slower-paced way. But basically, I would say his external problem is his acting career seems to be waning, and he doesn't know what to do, and he feels like he has no way to fix it. Then there's like this one lengthy sequence in the middle where he's acting on this TV show, and he gets inspired to do a good job that day, and he does after some conflict along the way. And then in the end, what happens with the whole Manson stuff, he has another opportunity to do something that in the end feels like it kind of in a weird way works out and helps him meet the next door neighbors and get an entree into the new Hollywood world that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski represent that he was felt shut out of before. So you do see a resolution to that problem in a way. And you also have there's a sequence where time has passed where he's like gone to Italy and stuff, right? And so there's some sense that maybe he's resolving that too by going and doing those, I guess, spaghetti westerns and stuff. So, um, but the the internal arc is, I think is more faint, but it's basically, I think it's just kind of like, he feels kind of like sorry for himself and he has to just kind of like buck up and you know be about the work instead of his own you know career prospects. Um, and for Brad Pitt, I think there's less, there's less going on. I mean, he's not really, he, not only is he not pursuing a resolution, we don't necessarily feel like, oh, his stuntman career is falling apart and it matters. It's just kind of like, okay, he's, he's, now at a certain point, he's not gonna be on the payroll anymore with Leo and it's like, oh, that's sad, but that doesn't kind of happen until right near the end. So I think there's, it's more a sense of, he, like you said, he's kind of happy living his life, it seems like, even though he doesn't have a lot. Um, so unlike Leo, he's not even bothered by his problems. So why would the audience? We're not really bothered. We're just kind of like enjoying watching the guy. And I think there's some great scenes, like the one where he goes to Spawn Ranch, I think is a really compelling sequence. Um, but there's not that sort of overall problem that we're really urgently addressing. And he's actively kind of uh, chasing throughout the movie. 
But maybe is that that character's problem, the fact that, um, sorry, Cliff Booth's problem, is that he is too content with this like mediocrity and being in this trailer and he's got this adorable dog and they're kind of like, you know, he's eating with these TV dinners or whatever, his macaroni and cheese. And it's almost like he's not okay. It's because he's not shaken up by that. Like how he's too complacent. I don't think we see him as too complacent. I think we just see him as a guy that's kind of fine with his life. Um, And I don't think we're saying, oh, you need to fix your life. You need to change and find some new path toward being a stuntman or whatever, nor do I think he really finds one in the end. I mean, he also has this climactic sequence on that fateful day in August, um, and maybe his life will be somewhat different after that. I can't remember if there's a sense that he's going to keep working for Leo after all, or, um, but I don't think there, I don't think there's really a sense of a problem. It's like, he tries to get hired on that one job and they're not gonna hire him. And then we have the flashback to when he made those people mad, which is why they don't want him to work. But it's a very light problem. It's the kind of problem you would normally see in the first few pages of a script, which is, oh, he's a stuntman, but he's not really working as a stuntman. And he wishes he was. And then usually there'd be some big catalyst of, oh, this big thing happens. And now he's gonna spend the rest of the movie trying to solve this big thing. We don't really have that big thing until the very end, he has a big thing. But he solved that so kind of easily that I don't think there's a ton of tension and concern about it because he's clearly just Mr. Super Badass. So, you know, it's it's fun to watch in a way. It's certainly riveting, but it's not a character who's like growing and changing and solving some inner or outer problem in his life, I didn't think. Whereas with the 40-year-old version, Steve Carell, there is this arc. Yeah, he's solving a very important problem that's plaguing his life at the end of that movie. He's completely changed at the end. He's a grown-up now. What is a scriptment? So a scriptment is kind of a word for something that's somewhere between a script and a treatment where that some writers like to use that I kind of recommended in a blog at one point that people consider, which is a document where traditionally an outline or a treatment, which are sometimes used to mean the same thing, is a scene-by-scene description of everything that happens in a script. It doesn't have dialogue yet. It doesn't have the actual interior movie studio offices day, so-and-so is sitting behind their desk. It doesn't have all that. It's just saying, in this scene, you know, the hero talks to the studio chief and they uh, fight about his salary on the movie or whatever. So you're describing the basic content, basic conflict of a scene in a treatment or an outline. Whereas a script, obviously, you're scripting it all out. So the idea of a scriptment is a in-between document that's sort of longer than a treatment or outline, but shorter than a script, where you go a bit further to figure out the details of what happens in the scene. Maybe you even have some snippets of dialogue. But what I've found is when I have an outline where, you know, in this scene, you know, these two people have this conflict about whatever. And I feel like that works in the outline. And then I go to sit down and write that scene in the script. What I'm usually faced with is, oh, I don't know nearly enough yet to write that scene. I don't know enough about what should or could happen in that scene. I have a lot more work to do to kind of figure out how this all plays out in that scene. And so that work that happens in between becomes, once I've done that work, I've sort of like I'm expanding my outline into something that, you know, more like you would call like a scriptment because there's that extra step of work required to be able to write the scene. So then don't do the scriptment after you've written the script. Because I can see some people doing it in the reverse 
after their first draft? Yeah, there's no point in doing a scriptment after you've written the script. Its only purpose is to expand your treatment or outline with more depth and specificity so it's easier to write the scenes in the actual script once you start doing that because a typical outline is a little too bereft of those details and specificity for you to be able to easily write the scene. There's this interim process of needing to kind of know more and figure out more before the scene's just gonna easily flow, in my experience. So then you wouldn't use it as a measure to see if, let's suppose you go through your first draft and say, this isn't working, I need to do sort of a, a, a more macro view of it, but I don't want to totally change everything around. Wouldn't that be another way where you could do more of a macro view of it? Well, yes, that, that is important. When, you're, when you're something isn't working in the script, a lot of times it's a bigger problem that you can't just be solved by changing stuff in the script. So you have to take a step back to a prior stage like a scriptman or an outline or whatever to sort of figure out what's not working story-wise because you can't see it in the scenes that are written in the script maybe. You just kind of sense it. This happens constantly and you have to go, well, what's really not working here? Do I need to rethink this movie? Do I have to re-outline the second act? Do I have to come up with some new different scenes because it's not working how I thought it would? And so then you go back to outline, script meant, whatever, and then eventually come back to the script once you figure out the new changes that you decided that you needed. What mistakes do writers make writing characters? I think that the challenge with characters that, that I have even is creating three-dimensional people that feel real and interesting to the audience and compelling and intriguing and sympathetic and all the things that you want them to be. So it's not so much that you're writing the character because you're like writing the script that has the character in it. Prior to writing the script, you're like figuring out who the character is and what you're going to present about that character to the audience. And I think it's kind of harder than it looks to come up with a character that feels real, that feels like they're really coming from real life somehow and is really interesting and that audiences will care enough about them and want to follow them because they're going to relate to them on some level. So it's like figuring out what are the key aspects of that character that define them for this movie or this TV series. What are the problems that they're mainly dealing with? What are their internal issues, their main internal issue and their main external problem? and then trying to write it in such a way that they're not just a tool of the story or the concept, but that they actually feel like, you know, the audience gets drawn into the reality of their life that feels super real somehow, the way that the character is drawn. It's not easy to do that, but that's the best characters. You feel like this is a real flesh and blood human being, and it has to do with, they're not just a stereotype, uh, they have elements, they might start with one aspect that could be a cliche or a stereotype or a trope or a one-dimensional feature, but then they have something else going on that maybe is surprising and very different. I read an article online recently, I think it was on Script Reader Pro's website where they talked about um, lengthy character bios aren't really that helpful. It's better to think of your characters in terms of one main quality that most people would define them as and then one surprising kind of twist that you wouldn't expect. So they use the example of American Beauty and they talked about like this one character, Wes Bentley's character is a wise beyond his years character. Like that's his main quality, sure. but he's also a drug dealer. 
which mm -hmm. is like a weird thing that you maybe wouldn't expect. And each of the like main characters in that movie, they defined in that way. The you know Mina Subari's character is this like flirty, you know, teen, but in reality she's an insecure virgin. And so like there's these surprising things that just this quality with this opposite or different quality. But finding that first quality even is important because it's easy to just kind of be vague about who these people are. You want to think in terms of if a stranger, which is what your audience is, were to look at this character in their life, what would be the one word description they'd have of the type of person that is? Not what they look like, but the type of person that they are. What's the main quality that comes through? And sort of figuring out what that quality is and then finding a way to subvert it to make them more dimensional um, seems like a good thing, something I've been playing with lately. And even, let's say, Goodwill Hunting, I mean, the fact that Matt Damon is supposedly this janitor that can just solve this unbelievable math equation just seems like, oh, that's never going to work. But then when you watch him against these, all these other characters, he seems like a real guy. Like, I mean, like that, that person exists to me. You see what I'm saying? Like, well, I, But he's also a good example of these two opposing qualities, one quality being that he's this kind of sort of like working class, tough guy, janitor street kid who's got a chip on his shoulder who happens to be a brilliant genius. Like two things you wouldn't think go together. What's your process for approaching dialogue? You know, it's kind of instinctual, I think. Once I know what's happening in the scene uh, and I know where it's going, like what, where the characters enter the scene, it's all about whose scene is it, what are they trying to achieve in that scene? What's in the way? And sort of what are they doing to try to get through whatever's in the way? That's pretty much the template for pretty much every scene. So then it's like, okay, part of that is gonna be dialogue. Part of that is gonna be what they say. And what they say should be the, the things that they would believably say given who they are and what their unique voice and way of speaking is in that situation given what's going on and what they want. So you want to avoid the mistake that people often make with expositional dialogue where people just speak information that the audience needs to know but they really wouldn't say in that moment. You want them to be saying the things that they would really say. When I'm doing it, it's kind of instinctual and I'm just sort of quickly writing what I have people say and then maybe go back and, and revise it. But what's probably in the back of my mind is it needs to be what they would naturally say given who they are and what they want. And people also don't always just express everything they want. Right, The best dialogue has subtext, which means the audience can pick up that they're thinking and feeling something that they're not saying, but what they're saying is what they think is the right thing to say to try to like get whatever it is that they want or the, the only thing that they're sort of able to say for whatever reason, given who they are and what's going on. But it's helpful if there's this sense of subtext of we know what the inner life is underneath that, that they're not saying. But what they are saying is hopefully uh, feels real f for that character and hopefully is entertaining in keeping with whatever the genre is. I mean, if it's a comedy, obviously your dialogue is going to often be trying to be funny as well. Um, so, um, yeah, it's not so much a figuring it out as it is just instinctually moving through it with those kind of things in the back of my mind. And then, of course, tons of revising, going back and rewriting and revising, you know, compressing, you know, cutting, editing the dialogue over time. Are there certain scenes that stand out that are great for subtext? 
a great study in that. Well, there, I mean, Robert McKee in his book Story analyzes the scene in, in Casablanca uh, with Humphrey Bogart and uh, Ingrid Bergman, where he, he gives you on the page all the dialogue in the scene and then he explains to you what the subtext is. So that's a great, that's like the, the thing that stayed with me the most from that book. It was a really helpful uh, thing. There's that scene in Annie Hall, the famous scene where uh, um, Alvy is at Annie's apartment and he's looking around at like the photos on the wall and he's saying stuff, but then in subtitles they tell you the subtext, <laughs> which is like, you're a really attractive girl, but what he's saying is, that's an interesting use of negative space. And her subtext is, I hope he's not a jerk like the others, but what she's saying is, oh really, you think so? So, I mean, it's a comedic you know, thing, but it's kind of sh showing you what subtext is. You think Humphrey Bogart was sort of the master at subtext? Because so, so much of his stuff is like sarcasm and sort of, but th there is like, without saying much, there's a look, there's a, a, there's a jab in a lot of things. He's it's a good question, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how much credit to give actors for it because really it's in the writing to some extent. You need, the, you need the scenes and the characters to be, to have that inner life that's gonna be clear to the audience, but also have dialogue on the page that is not exactly what they're thinking and feeling, you know, where you can feel the gap. At the same time, it's a big part of acting, I think, is to know what am I really feeling and thinking, because I'm not saying it, and what am I saying, and how do I portray what I'm really thinking and feeling to the audience, even though I'm sort of hiding it in a way in my dialogue, or I'm not quite coming out with it in my dialogue for whatever reason, and obviously there are great actors who, who do that particularly well. Do you think certain decades of cinema have more or less subtext? Uh, I don't know about that. I would say that television writing uh, traditionally has tended to have less subtext, especially kind of like what we traditionally think of as like primetime network dramas and comedies usually have a lot of dialogue and the dialogue tends to be a little more on the surface with just saying whatever it is people are thinking and feeling. Although nowadays when we have all these TV shows that are more movie-like and that have a different feel to them, you might see a lot of subtext in the dialogue there as you might do in movies. It's a more, I guess, slightly more like sophisticated kind of thing which doesn't, isn't necessarily present in certain genres. Like if it's, an, if it's Bruce Willis in Die Hard, there's probably not a lot of subtext. Right, or if it's uh, you know South Park is not filled with subtext, right? So, but sort of like serious dramas, you know, tend to have more subtext, or just you know, I hate to use like a pejorative that you know it's good if you have it and bad if you don't, but to some extent that's true that it tends to be more interesting and involving if we're seeing people who aren't saying everything that they're really thinking. I mean, Fleabag, I don't know if you've seen Fleabag on Amazon is a series that mm -hmm. I recently watched both seasons of, and it good. has this great device where this, the main character turns to the camera and like kind of tells us sometimes her subtext. Um, and it says it's running dialogue with the camera, which they did a little bit in House of Cards and other shows have done it too. They do it in their own unique way so that mm -hmm. the audience is in on it. She doesn't give us every bit of subtext, but she gives us some pointed looks and moments of here's what she's really thinking, but she's saying something different. And I mean this in, in all seriousness, you think of Bruce Willis though in Moonlighting, and it was tons of subtext between he and Simple Shepard. Right, yeah, it depends on the genre. It's not about the actor does or doesn't do it, it's about the project, yeah. Oh, so you don't think that certain, you think certain actors get more roles in terms of, you know, because you think of Samuel L. Jackson's character and he's so great and everything, but he's just gonna say what he feels, you know, and he's gonna be, he's gonna have this moment where he's gonna have like a little mini meltdown and everyone's gonna be kind of at his mercy and then they're gonna kind of like do what they, 
he wants them to do. Like certain actors seem to get, seems like more of one style than the other. I mean, they may get cast in roles that are non-subtexty roles more, I suppose, but I don't know that it's certain actors do subtext and some don't, or some are better at and some aren't. I think it more is a writing thing. It's more, what kind of scene is it? You know, because we're really talking about the scene level. Dialogue is operates on the scene level. So what kind of scene is it? Who, who are the people in the scene and what are the agendas and what are they trying to communicate or achieve? And what are they really thinking and feeling? And are those things gonna be in the dialogue or not? Kind of just depends on the kind of genre and the kind of scene it is, I think. So Aaron Sorkin, maybe less subtext. Gillian Flynn, maybe more with Gone Girl and different things. Yeah, that's a good point. Aaron Sorkin, I think, is less subtexty because he tends to write these very, uh, you know, smart people articulately laying out arguments for things. I mean, I think of like the West Wing classically that way. And so, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not subtexty for the most part. It's very come out and say your opinion and argue it with somebody. It's kind of an intellectual, cerebral type of writing, I think, that's engaging on that level. It's entertaining on that level. Um, and I'm not saying that he doesn't ever have scenes that have subtext. I'm sure he does. Like if you look at the social network, I could probably imagine scenes that have a, a lot of subtext. Sure. Um, you know, where uh, Justin Timberlake's on the phone with, um, you know, Eduardo, uh, and he's saying one thing, but we know what he's really mean. You know, like there's, it's not that Aaronswick never does it or can't do it. It's just the style he's most known for, like from the West Wing, I think you're right, is less subtexty. Do you outline all of your work every time? I do outline all of my work, and I think most screenwriters do, but as with everything in the writing process, there's no like one definite cookie cutter method that always works great all the time. So I'm always aware that every new project is like a new adventure and a new kind of chaotic mess of the process of how it turns into whatever it turns into. And so outlining, pre-planning everything has its obvious pros and cons. The cons are that maybe there's a spontaneity that's lost or a it could go in some direction that surprised you if you just sort of free wrote and didn't know where it was going, which I think novelists tend to do, and maybe some screenwriters do that too. The, 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 the pro of outlining is that you have a solid story structurally and you kind of figure it all out in a way that's hard to do when you're in the middle of writing scenes. You know, so, but I think screenwriting tends to require that structure more because one of the reasons I think is in like novel writing, you can be inside a character's head. And in, in screenwriting, you're really describing action that people are taking, what they're physically doing that we would see and what they're saying. And a lot of the content of the story is underneath that. And in a novel, you can just write that other content because a lot of it's like internal thoughts. Not every, not every novel has a lot of internal thoughts, but many do. Whereas in a screenplay, you usually can't really do that. So for the audience to really understand what's going on in the story and what it all means and what people want and feel, you have to construct it in a way that's sort of like a Rubik's Cube kind of where if you don't pre-plan it, it's like impossible to solve it, it seems like. Probably not impossible, but that's been my experience and my training. So I outline and I usually recommend that writers do, but some people work better where they can just jump into scenes at an earlier part of the process and maybe they discover things that then later go into the outline and there's a back and forth. There's no one method that I think you have to do it this one way. So you've seen that where people 
do their first draft and then they may be put it in the proverbial drawer and then they go and they could outline later to see if Well, it it's not that you outline later, it's that you see problems in the script and then you go back to the outline stage to try to address those problems and make it more coherent. I mean, there are definitely a lot of writers who are good at scene writing but not good at structure and not good at the kind of architecture of a story. And, and so, and I have counseled many writers in, with that situation, and sometimes they have a real difficult time taking a step back to the sort of structure or the like macro view of their story or even their concept, where they're, they're more about, I'm comfortable when I'm writing scenes. And I think most writers are more comfortable writing scenes, especially if you know roughly what the scenes are supposed to be or are gonna be and you can just write them. It can be harder to go, well, let me analyze the story from a larger perspective, but screenwriters seem to need to be able to do that and that usually involves some sort of outlining and pre-planning that you actually write down before you jump into the actual script document. Did you outline for your book? I did outline for my book, um, yes. And so how was that for you? Because I know you, you you write a blog. I don't know if your blog came. It definitely it came before the book, obviously. Yes. So, are you taking um, you know prior blog posts and plugging them in as chapters? Yeah, there is some material from prior blog posts. Yes, where but then I came up with this sort of superstructure for the book as a concept, which is that it's going to be these seven elements, and each one has its own chapter. And then I might have had some material on my blog from years ago that fit that if I repurposed and revised it somewhat, and then also writing some new material as well. Does every screenwriter need an agent or a manager? You do if you're not going to produce your work independently and you're going to try and get it sold uh, and get it, get it produced by someone else. Uh, it's pretty hard to do it without that unless you have a very close friend or relative who's a producer or you know, in a position to kind of greenlight a movie, but for the most part, all writers that work in the industry have an agent and or a manager. Although right now, writers have kind of fired their agents because of a big dispute that the Writers Guild is having with the agencies as a whole. But putting that aside, um, most successful writers these days have both. Um, some have only one or the other, but those people are your way of getting your work to the potential buyers. It's really difficult to do that on one's own. Um, uh, you know, almost impossible really to to launch a writing career where you never had an agent or a manager that's being the person that introduces you to those people that rely on them to filter out all of the people that aren't worthy of their time, so to speak, in terms of their work and their writing. So you know, the industry relies on those representatives to some extent to recommend writers and scripts and projects and pitches to them and they'll only be interested if they come to them recommended by someone they trust just because there's the volume of stuff out there that it's hard for them to sift through all of it, the producers, the executives, etc., without somebody who's sort of performing that function for them. So in a way that's what agents and managers do. They also help writers figure out what to write and how to write and present material that will be successful as well, in theory, um, so that's a, that's a valuable function as well, but the main function is helping them get work and then negotiating their, their deals and the business side of their careers and maximizing that as well, which most of us writers wouldn't be so good at doing that for ourselves. What's your advice to a screenwriter who doesn't have an agent or a manager in two parts? 
how should they find one and what should they be doing in the meantime when there's no active leads? So there's no real easy or direct or obvious way for a writer to get an agent or a manager. It's what every writer wants once they recognize that that's the first step to having a career or to working professionally. Pretty much everyone knows that's what they need, but it's very hard to get one and you can't just go make that happen. So it's more that you have to like focus on the craft and focus on the writing. It's not so much how do I get an agent or manager, it's how do I write something that an agent or manager would like if they read it. That's the key thing that people you know, are best to focus on, I think. So you can send query emails to some managers and even some agents. Here's a log line of a script I've written. You don't know me, but do you want to read the script? And in theory, that could get read and they could say yes, and then they could love the script. And there are a small number of people that get signed that way. Very small, I would say, but it does happen. Uh, a lot of places, really legit, bigger management and agency, agent companies won't take those kind of unsolicited queries, won't ever respond to you, et cetera. Um, there's also the writing contests, uh, competitions and fellowships and things, and some film festivals have writing contests that if you do really well at really prestigious ones, there will be some agents or managers that will probably find you from that, or you can use that information to make a query have a better chance at resulting in them wanting to read something. If you say this was fifth in the Nickel Fellowship last year, obviously that's gonna help. Um, but as far as what to do in the meantime, it's right. <laughs> I mean, that's your job is the writing, not the, the business side. And all that stuff's the business side that you can't really control or force into existence. So it's write and get feedback and be open and learn and study the craft and keep writing and write lots of things. Don't just spend a million years on one thing, but keep initiating new projects and exploring new ideas and increasing your understanding of the craft and sharing your work with people that can give you professional level feedback if possible, whether you're in a writing program or you hire a private consultant of some kind or happen to know somebody that can give you that, that will be honest and helpful as opposed to just like a friend who doesn't really know what they're reading and is gonna be nice, so to speak. Where is someone finding the contact info for these agents or managers, IMDB Pro? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could find them on IMDb Pro, but there's so many companies, it's a little hard to sift through and know which ones are which, uh, which ones are legit, which ones are big, and which ones are small. I did a list of managers that's available on my website. Uh, it's been like almost three years now. It's probably still mostly up to date. I've seen other websites that have, you know, list of the top Hollywood management companies and so forth. So once you know which ones are the legit ones, then you can go to IMDb Pro to find their contact info, in theory. Um, another way to know who's legit is if you, and this is how I created my list partly, is to read, read uh, information about what spec scripts have sold in a given year and which managers represented those, or which scripts made the blacklist or made some of these other big year-end lists of screenplays that you can find online and who were the managers of those agents and those scripts. That will tell you that that's probably a, a fairly legit management company because if you just search managers on IMDb Pro, you're going to get thousands and most of them are not really in a position probably to be necessarily that helpful. And the, the same thing with agencies. The Writers Guild on their website has a list of franchised Writers Guild agencies, which right now is a shorter list because you know, there's been this, this, uh, this standoff negotiation where, where most of the big agencies, including the four big ones that represent 80% of working writers or something like that, writers aren't dealing with them right now and everyone's had to like fire their agents. So 
Um, probably many people would tell you that you really want to be before this whole dispute happened and maybe after it's over, the big four are the ones that have the most power and so most writers gravitate to one of those big four. But there are a lot of other smaller ones as well, some of which are very legit and many of which are probably not really gonna be able to do much for you necessarily. So part of it is knowing which ones are the legit ones and then how do I contact them? Can I contact them? But the bigger point is realizing that you probably can't do that much to force your way into having a manager or an agent. It will sort of happen over time if and when your work gets to the point where it's being loved by the kind of people that that read for the agencies and the management companies. There's also these coverage services online like specscout.com is a pretty good one where these professional readers read and evaluate scripts and if one does really well, the blacklist has a thing like this too. It goes up on their website and in theory managers and agents can see it. But again, the step is writing something that the big contest and these kind of services and professionals would love first. That's the really hard part that most writers never get to. The getting a manager or an agent once you've done that is easy. It's just really hard to get yourself to that place. So that's kind of the less, lesser of evils. That's the, the least of the writer's problem. The, the real problem is getting your work out there and getting it good enough so that somebody, you have more than just one option. Yeah, the real challenge is getting it good enough. Good is a, obviously a subjective thing, but good enough in the eyes of those kind of people. That's why I say write something that those people would love if they read it, meaning managers or agents. That's the hard part, not the getting it to them once you've done it. Because if you've written something that those people would love, it's probably winning contests and doing well on coverage services, and you probably already have friends that are agents or friends of, I mean, it's because it's rare that people get to that level, and when they do, they're probably already on the inside, or like, it's, it's sort of like the next logical step, as opposed to this reaching for this star thing that you can't even fathom how to get there. It's rare that a writer would have material that they would love if you could get it to them, but they have no idea, and it just seems impossible. Um, it's usually you would have learned and educated yourself by osmosis even about all of that while writing if your material was at the point where those people would like it if they read it, which is why most of them will say, don't try to find us, we'll find you, essentially. Why is screenwriting so hard? Well, is it hard? I guess I'll get philosophical about it. Do you mean, is it, why is it hard to succeed professionally at it? or why is it hard to actually write a screenplay? It, you know, it's, it's not hard to write one, it's hard to write one that you could be paid for or that someone would spend millions of dollars to make a movie from. <laughs> and that's like, in a way, it's kind of like saying, why is creating a multi-million dollar business so hard? Well, it's just obvious why it's hard. It's like it's rare. It takes something special, both in the person and the idea and the, 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 the how you execute it and all that. Like there's a lot that goes into it. It's kind of like that because that's kind of what you're doing when you create a, a screenplay or a pilot. You're creating, you're creating a business plan for like a multi-million dollar business, essentially, that someone's got to put millions of dollars into. So when you think of it that way, it's like, of course that's hard because whatever endeavor you were doing that you were trying to achieve that result with would be hard, or I should say it would be rare that you're successful, or it would take a lot of work, or a lot of time, or a lot of education, or a lot of expertise, or a lot of coaching, or a lot of failed attempts before you get to the one that works, and all that kind of stuff, right? So to me, it's like the same thing with screenwriting. 
Um, but you could view it like, you know, I'm learning how to play the piano, you know, and I hopefully enjoy the process of learning and enjoy the process of playing what I can play right now. I don't expect to be playing this at Carnegie Hall, but I am enjoying what I'm doing and I'm, people are hearing it and saying, oh, that was really good. But I'm also aware that when I read Aaron Sorkin's script or, you know, J.J. Abrams or whatever, oh, I can't do what they're doing, but I want to. So how do they do it? And what is different from what they're doing from what I'm doing? And it becomes, you know, or just like I listen to a great pianist, I can't do that. Well, how do they do? You know, it's a gr learning, growing process where if you're successful, you can be famous and rich and have an incredible life or whatever. But like anything like that, there's going to be very few people that, you know, get to the Olympics out of all the people doing gymnastics or whatever. So, whether you know, it's just a hard, rare competitive sort of tournament type profession on a professional level. But hopefully you enjoy the process and you get something from doing it so it becomes just a calling and a daily practice and an interest as opposed to this thing that's so hard. Because when you're focused on how hard it is, then it kind of strangles the creative process and the joy from it. Not that I don't do that on a regular basis because writers tend to you know, do that, but it's helpful to think I don't have to. Is that how you see it as a daily practice? I like that. Yeah, I set aside time daily for writing and I try to keep that appointment and I'm also open to ideas flowing at other parts of the day or the week when I wasn't sitting down to write. But yeah, it's a practice because it's like, it's rare that you have a day where, oh my God, this was the greatest day of writing ever. And then the next day you still feel it was great. And six months later, that material or whatever you did that day was so significant. You're really just doing a tiny little bit. You're putting one brick on an enormous wall every day. And some of those bricks are gonna be taken down and replaced with different bricks later, maybe all of them. And so you kind of just have to be like, I'm just doing what's in front of me to do today. This is today's task. And I know at least that I can do this or I know how to start on doing this and I'm just going to do this and that's it. Or I make it a little further, but, and it's just every day you're doing that day's work. <laughs> so just as let's say meditation is a daily practice, somebody's showing up to meditate if they have an altar at home or whatever it is for an hour, they're taking time, they're making this sort of sacred space for themselves. Do you consider writing in a similar vein? Yeah, and those two things go together. I meditate as well, and meditating right before a writing session is not a bad idea <laughs> because definitely it helps to not have your kind of surface mind going kind of crazy, and meditation can help calm that, and writing goes better when that is calmed. So, but yeah, I do see it as kind of similar to that in a way. When should a writer quit their full-time job? Only when writing has become one that can replace that full-time job, <laughs> basically, I would say, which, you know, is, uh, you kind of know it when that happens, I think. I mean, obviously, if you have a full-time job because you need that amount of income and you can't get it if you quit because writing isn't, isn't bringing it, then I probably wouldn't be quitting. I mean, I think most people tend to get it. I don't see people quitting their jobs even when they have a nibble, a professional nibble at writing, because you can have a nibble that doesn't turn into anything. Even you get an agent, even you get a job, even if you get a job on writing staff of a hit show, that could be over in six months and you may not get another one. So, I mean, you're gonna suspend your full-time day job while you're on that hit show, because you probably have to go to work every day on the show at the offices, you know, with the rest of the writers. But um, I would say it's great if you have other ways to earn a living that you like, and that have growth potential, 
um, and no reason to let those go. <laughs> but there may come a time where you have to stop because I'm writing on a movie and they need me, you know, full time for the next six months. And they're paying me half a million dollars or whatever. That'd be a good problem to have. <laughs> What about the notion that people think that I just need six months, I'm going to take this time off and I'm going to, this is going to go great, I'm going to get up every day and I have this regimen and this practice and I'm going to crank these pages out. Do you think that really works or do you think that it's just this rom romantic version of writing? I, I don't know if it works. I've never really done that. It maybe works sometimes for some people. I'm more a believer that you carve out time in your regular life every day or like five days a week. So if that means getting up early for an hour, I mean, Ron Bass used to be a lawyer and he would wake up, I, the story was at 3 a.m. and write for four hours and then go be an entertainment lawyer all day back before he was a famous screenwriter. But even, you know, an hour at night, an hour at lunch, whatever, half hour, you know, every Saturday and Sunday for two hours each. And then, I, although even that I think is not as good as five days a week. But the idea of I'm going to go take this time off and then when that time is over, I don't have time to write anymore, I don't think tends to work as well. That's not to say you can't take a retreat for a week or a month or I think John August does that. He goes to a hotel in Las Vegas to pump out a first draft in three weeks or whatever, like a change of scenery or a getting away from the normal daily responsibilities can work, but I think it works best combined with you also have a daily writing practice and you're moving it forward every day in some way as well. Do you think the notion of wanting to take this long stretch of time out actually is damaging because you lose touch with the day-to-day? Because -day. when you're not working or you're like on vacation, your mind is not really in the reality of the day-to-day. -day. Your troubles are different. You're, 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 you know what I'm saying? Because you're, you're not stressing being on someone else's time schedule, which you really are when you have a job. You're at the mercy of their schedule, mm -hmm. pretty much. So do you think you lose touch with, with writing? Well, you're saying when you go off and write and leave your regular life, will your writing not be as good because you're out of touch with regular life? Pretty much, yeah. I don't really see that as an issue. I think it's okay to not be currently immersed in your normal life to be able to write. I think it's just more a danger that somebody just never writes until they have that magical stretch of time where they think they're going to write all day, every day, and it's going to be great. I think most writers who are professionals tend to more have a block of time. They do it kind of every day that may be a shorter block, but they're always kind of doing it and moving it forward.